it's all over now. I just got wasted for you. Oh, I ain't sober now. Nah, uh pour me a drink, pour me two. I just went all night, all night. I feel so dazed and confused. I just went all night, all night. I'm wildin' now cause of you. Oh, baby, no. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Doing with Bartolo. We've got some new intro music. Uh, this is uh, Justified by John Waltz. Uh, John's a really talented musician from uh, Memphis, Tennessee, uh, and he's on the verge of making it big, I think. And uh, he's ta- he's managed by my one of my really good friends, Alex Cyber. Uh, so please make sure to go check out uh, John's music. He's at soundcloud.com slash John Waltz, J-O-N-W-A-L-T-Z. Uh, he's got some really great tracks on both iTunes and Spotify. So if you get a chance, make sure to go check it out. Uh, and uh, we've got some, we've got a great guest for you today. We have Chad Finn of the Boston Globe. Chad is the media critic over there, and he also is a sports columnist, uh, just covering you know everything really for Boston.com. And uh, Chad's one of my favorite personal sports writers uh, in Boston, as you know, as being from someone who who reads a lot about Boston sports. Uh, Chad's a, a really great writer. He writes in this really engaging, uh, kind of irreverent tone that really you know hypes up the fact that sports are fun. And uh, I really love reading Chad, and I had a really great time talking to him. And I, I think it'll, you guys will enjoy our conversation as well. Uh, we talked about. Uh, you know the Boston sports media scene, and and among many other things, and uh, you, I think everybody will have something to take out of the conversation. Uh, if this is your first time checking out the show, welcome. Uh, make sure to hit the subscribe button on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you listen to the show on. Uh, make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes as well. It really does help out the show. And uh, share the show with a friend if you guys enjoy this and check out the previous episodes as well. You can follow the show on iTunes, uh, sorry, excuse me, on Twitter, at BartoloPod. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter as well, at IamJuneLee. Uh, Chad's on Twitter at GlobeChadFin. Uh, so make sure to go check him out as well. And uh, without further ado, this is uh, Chad Finn of the Boston Globe. You are a melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. You are my favorite song. Your love is justified. You all right. So uh, on the show this week, we have Chad Finn of the Boston Globe. Chad, uh, thanks for coming on. You bet, June. How are you? Doing good, doing good. I want to, to have you onto the show today just to, you know, uh, talk about your career. And uh, you started off in, in uh, you grew up in Maine. So I presumably you grew up a, a big Boston, New England sports fan. I did, yeah. I grew up in, um, up in Bath, Maine, which is uh, probably 40, 45 minutes north of Portland. So it's still civilization. Uh, it's a coastal town, good place to grow up, and, uh, you know, they're, they're the Boston Red Sox, but uh, as we all know, they're the New England uh, Red Sox as well, and uh, my dad is a huge sports fan, so uh, I, I kind of got the love of sports from him. He used to bring home the Globe and the uh, and the Herald. He would give me the Herald to read. He kept the Globe for himself, and uh, he would, uh, on Sundays, uh, he would read Peter Gams's column, and, and uh, all those cliches of all the people who have grown up in Boston and become sports writers, uh, they're all true. There's a reason they're cliches, is because they're based in reality, and I was one of them. I, uh, I remember when uh, when I would get the paper first before him, I would start reading the Sunday baseball notes to him, and he'd get mad because I was spoiling it for him. Uh, with all the trade rumors and that sort of thing that Gammons was uh, so ahead of his time with. So mm-hmm. um, it's been in my blood since uh, probably about as long as I can remember, uh, certainly uh, about eight years old. My, my first year following the Red Sox was 78, and uh, 
wasn't a happy ending to that season, but it was a really great season and a really fun team to watch with Rice and Lynn and Fisk and Yaz and my favorite player is Butch Hobson. So um, good time to grow up a Red Sox fan, even if it wasn't quite as rewarding as it's been for kids these days. Yeah, I mean, my first year was 2003, so I had that like one year of suffering and then 04 was just, you know, <laughs> the, the World Series victory. And it was, you know, since then it's been a pretty smooth sailing over the last couple of years. Uh, but yeah, you don't even know a lousy Patriots team. You've uh, you've, you've yeah, never I mean, seen it's all Brady and Belichick for you. You're you're so spoiled. Yeah, I mean, like I've only seen I've only followed a, a football team that's had a one of the best quarterbacks of all time and one of the best coaches of all time. So I always feel super spoiled in that regard. <laughs> Yeah, Patriots fans paid their dues uh, before Brady. They 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 were overdue for somebody like that with all of the uh, all the stuff they had to endure in the in the early '80s or I guess the late '80s and the '90s and almost moving to St. Louis and all those things. So uh, it's a, this extraordinary run that they've been on. If you're a longtime Patriots fan, uh, you endured a lot to get to this point. So uh, it's it's uh, the rewards are justifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you so was baseball your your first sport or your first love growing up then in terms of sports? Um, yeah, yeah, uh, it's certainly the, the first one I really cared about as a fan. Uh, it was my dad's favorite, still is, uh, we do a, we're still in a couple fantasy baseball leagues together, uh, uh, so it's, it's been one of those bonds, certainly, with him, and, uh, that was the first one. Uh, for me, my favorite sport, probably, to play has always been basketball, and it's, it's the one I feel like I probably know the most about. Technically, uh, I feel like I could. I mean, I do coach youth on that one. Uh, it's certainly not the same playing, uh, coaching at a higher level, but I feel like I understand the concepts of the game like that as well as uh, any sport, including baseball. But baseball is the one that's always been there. I still get excited for this time of year when they get down to spring training and uh, that you get the new guys in uniform and the hope is there and uh, all of that stuff. That uh, you know, it's, it's sentimental and sappy and nostalgic, but that's also part of the sports appeal and. Um, to me, that's always been there. I mean, I've been a sports writer for since uh, I started out of college in 1994, so over 20 years, uh, and I've never got the cynicism that usually accompanies that. I still really like sports. Um, I work here with Bob Ryan, and uh, his approach to sports has always been uh, it's good for business if the local teams win. So you're supposed to be objective, and you are, uh, but you can also you can also um, appreciate what you have and appreciate what you get to do for a living and uh, recognize that if the teams succeed, um, that's good for everybody. It's good for you because you get to talk to uh, happy players and uh, they're, they're going to be more engaging. Uh, people in the community are happier when the teams are doing well. Uh, everybody's making money. So it's, uh, I like that optimism and it, I feel like it's sort of a rare attribute among the media these days and it used to be so. Uh, it's sort of the approach that I take, and I, it comes from a natural place. I still like sports as much as I ever did. I've never really understood why a lot of writers become cynical about sports, because I think at the end of the day, like baseball is just a game of of a bunch of grown men hitting hitting balls with <laughs> with sticks and running around on a field with pillows on them. Like, and baseball is just a game, and so I don't really understand how people can start view view kind of that in a in a cynical kind of way and i just have never really understood how and maybe it's just my my naivety as a as a young person but i i just haven't been able to comprehend how people can become cynical about sports yeah it's uh i th- i think in some ways maybe it fills in a gap in people's lives or it's something that helps them relate to other people 
if you're complaining about the Red Sox, uh, you've got a lot of other people sitting there complaining about the Red Sox with you. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a New England pastime to go into, uh, you know, up where I live, the main diner, and sit down at the counter and uh, complain to the guy next to you who you may not even know, you know, the mailman or whoever uh, it happens to be. Yeah, you know, uh, Buckholz is hurt again. God, that guy sucks, you know. And it's, it's an easy entry point to a discussion. Um, so, so that's uh, one of the cool things about it. It just happens that it usually comes from a negative perspective around here. Um, I do think people lose uh, perspective on what sports are supposed to be sometimes or that it really is a silly thing. But again, when you, uh, you can make that point, I, it's guys in weird clothing running around bases, hitting a, a ball with a stick, but, uh, go back to 2004 and you see what that meant to people when the Red Sox finally won after 86 years. And, um, the effect it had on uh, you know a forty-five-year-old guy whose father was seventy-five years old, and they never thought they would see the Red Sox win a World Series together. And it's been something that bonded them for for decades, for uh, generations, literally. Uh, you see why it matters. It's just one of those things that we uh, hear in New England, and of course with other teams and other communities as well. It's something you have in common, and it sort of bonds you to the to the the people that you you're with, you work with, and you live by. And uh, just sort of a cultural thing that uh, uh, maybe we take too seriously sometimes, but it really does matter in, in terms of uh, in terms of relating to other people. What did it mean for you when you saw the the Red Sox win the World Series in '04? And you know, having having grown up in New England and, and being a, a sports columnist in the city, what what did that mean to you to see that? I was mad because I didn't have an outlet to write then. I was, uh, I mean, I was thrilled, of course. I was, is something, I was 34 years old at the time and something I'd waited 26 years to see. And, uh, 2003, when they, when Aaron Boone hit the home run and they lost, um, I was depressed. I was legitimately depressed. I was working up in Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, I was, uh, was a columnist there, a small newspaper, the Concord Monitor, a really great place to work. Um, I was the layout guy and uh, was pretty involved in all the aspects of our sports department. And that night, uh, we're watching and waiting to see how it goes. And I have a column ready to go about them uh, going to face the Marlins in the World Series. And Aaron Boone hits a home run and you hit the lead on that. And uh, you just felt at that moment that uh, it was never going to happen. If that 2003 team, as good as they were, as much camaraderie as they had, um, couldn't do it if they couldn't overcome the Yankees I felt like it was never going to happen and I was legitimately bummed about that my wife who was my girlfriend at the time um, she said she's never seen me as down as I was after that and I kind of had uh, I kind of had this feeling of like if you're going to invest so much time and uh, of your life into this thing and it's never rewarding why do you bother do it and I I think a lot of Red Sox fans felt the same way so when they overcame that uh, the, the next October and did it in the fashion that they did coming back from 3-0 against the Yankees uh, and then going on to breeze to the World Series um, it was the ultimate payoff and it was a thrill obviously for everybody but um, I had left in December 2003 to come to the Globe and I took a layout and design job I wasn't writing anymore when I got the job the sports editor at the time said I just want you to know you're not going to be writing the line is a mile long for that among people on the desk we need editors I was thrilled to do that I always wanted to work at the Globe um, and uh, I did like editing and, and laying out a sports section but when they went and won, I was dying to have an outlet. I, I just, I, 
had no place to write, and all these great, amazing things happen. I'm reading people like Bill Simmons write 5,000-word pieces on it, what it means to all of us, and I didn't have a venue, and it drove me kind of nuts. So that November, um, I started a blog uh, on Blogspot, and it sort of evolved into uh, what I do here now, which is uh, you know write columns online for Boston.com and, and, and do some media coverage for the Globe newspaper. But um, it all came out of 2004, not having a venue to write one. The one thing you waited your whole career to write about just happened. <laughs> Uh, it's something that I think is really interesting about, uh, in particular, about the Boston sports media scene, and this was kind of pointed out in, in Spotlight uh, too, is that a lot of people who work for media outlets in Boston are from the area, and, and I think that's particularly true with a lot of the, the sports beats. Uh, do you think there there's something? What do you think it is about Boston that that kind of breeds these, you know, all these sports writers and uh, and and and, and uh, I don't know, fosters a a, a will or a desire to, to cover these teams? Yeah, um, I, I think the I think it comes from that '70s Globe newspaper, really. The the uh, what it, what did uh, Theo Epstein called it the Gammons Youth. Uh, right. All these people who grew up and reading grew up reading Gammons in the Globe, uh, Bob Ryan on basketball. Um, you know, Ray Fitzgerald as a columnist, Will McDonough covering the NFL. That was as good as it gets. I mean, you didn't have ESPN then, certainly not to the degree that you do now by any stretch, and so. Uh, the Globe was the ultimate destination for people to get into the New York Times or the Washington Post. That was the pinnacle. There was no next step after that. And so when you got great people, you retained them. And that's what the Globe did for years and years and years. Lee Modville is a columnist. Just on and on you could go. And um, kids like me uh, of my generation and uh, even a little bit younger grew up reading that every morning and said, God, that seems like a great job. Uh, you get to talk to these guys. You get to write your your opinion. Uh, you get to write stuff that everybody's talking about at uh, you know Dunkin' Donuts the next day or whatever. That seems awesome. And so I think there's a whole generation of kids who, when they got to whatever age, uh, 12, 15, whatever, even college, and realized, you know what, I'm not going to play left field for the Red Sox. What's the next best thing? It's covering the Red Sox for a, a Boston outlet, a newspaper at the time, uh, in a market where everybody cares about it and everybody has an opinion and uh, so I think that that's the number one reason why so many people emerged from those couple of generations those couple of decades to become sports writers and, and sports personalities nowadays in Boston it's because of the way things were back in the 70s and 80s. When did you realize that you wanted to, to go into sports writing? Uh, very early. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I mentioned the ages where people realize they probably don't have the athletic skill they hope they did. Uh, for me, it was about 16. I, I, I played basketball through high school, but I, uh, I stopped playing baseball, I think, as a sophomore. And uh, I loved the sport, but I just wasn't very good at it. And so in high school, I started uh, trying to figure out a way that I could get a gig like Shaughnessy or get a gig like Bob Ryan. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, when I'm a sophomore in high school, it's uh, it's Larry Bird at the height of his powers with the Celtics. It's the '86 Celtics. It's uh, uh, the Red Sox going to the World Series that year. The Patriots are even pretty good then. The Bruins are always right there on the fringe of being a Cup contender, and it never really never won one, but they always had a good good interesting team. And so there was always something cool going on in Boston sports. And uh, when I realized I wasn't gonna actually ever going to be a participant in Boston sports, when that awakening came pretty early. I decided, you know what, I like reading, I like to write, I love reading the newspaper, I want to be like these guys. And so started working for the school magazine. Uh, when I went to college, I knew I was going to be a journalism uh, student, 
went to UMaine, uh, and I started working for the paper as a freshman, and then I uh, didn't do it for a couple of years, a couple pretty hazy years there, and then I went back to it when I was a, a junior and then a uh, senior. I was a sports editor there for two years. When I was there, I got to cover um, – Maine had a real good hockey program then. They went 42-1-2 and one and, two and won a national championship and had a bunch Paul Korea and a bunch of future NHL guys. And so I got some good clips out of covering that pretty compelling team. And that led me to my first job, which led me here. But um, So I never really had a second thought. I didn't have a plan B about what I was going to do because plan A was to be a sports writer from a fairly young age. And I think you, you gained a lot of notoriety once you started that, uh, you know, touching all the bases. Um you know, after after 2004, uh, at what point did you kind of realize that this Internet thing was kind of the way that things were going? Yeah, I kind of realized that uh, when my bosses did, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I started it because I wanted to write and I had had some success as a writer at the, up in, in New Hampshire, you know, won a few awards and, and things like that. And my, my editor, who I really greatly respected there, thought I was pretty good at it. So it gave me confidence that I could do it. Um, and when I wasn't, you know, like I said, the Red Sox won. And that was so frustrating from a professional standpoint. Uh, so I started doing it just to have an outlet to write. There wasn't really a bigger plan beyond that. But uh, blogs are still kind of a punchline in newspaper newsrooms in those days. It, it feels like it was 50 years ago, but it was really only about... 10 and after a year i've told the story before but uh after a year my boss got wind that i had a blog <laughs> and he called me into his office and he said uh so i hear you're blogging like you know like it was a swear word and i was like yeah uh, you know just writing about baseball i miss writing about baseball and he said okay you can keep doing it just as long as you don't kill shaughnessy on there because that was what his perception of a blog was, was, was somebody just uh, dumping on the globe and Shaughnessy and all those things. And there are ones that do that, for sure, but uh, that's not what I was doing. I was thrilled to be working there and wasn't going to do anything to jeopardize that. And then what happened, uh, I guess five years later, I kept doing it, wrote three or four times a week. I got, I got a few readers here and there. Uh, it was actually Gammons helped me out a lot. He put a link to it on his old ESPN baseball page and uh, that that really made a, a big deal. And Will Leach at uh, Deadspin posted a couple of things that I wrote on there. And so that gave me a good bump. Um, Bruce Allen, too, at Boston Sports Media Watch used to link to me a lot, uh, even when I was in Concord. And that, that, that made a difference. Uh, um, but it was 2009 when things changed in Boston Sports Media, uh, Comcast Sportsnet New England uh, decided to launch a website and revamped its television operation to what it is now. And they start hiring people all over the place. They tried to uh, poach us uh, at the Globe. Um, trying to think who they took. I don't know if they actually got anybody. I'm, I'm probably forgetting something obvious. But they went after a lot of our people. Uh, WDI launched its website in the form that it's in now. Um, and so they were hiring people. Uh, and what's the other one? It's on Nesson. Uh, there was something else that popped up. Oh, it was uh, ESPN Boston popped mm -hmm. up at the same time. And they, they hired Chris Forsberg away from us. They hired uh, um, a couple of other people, our editor, Dave Leefort. And so they were trying to take people away. It caused internal panic a little bit. And uh, as it, uh, to, to counter that, uh, Boston.com bolstered its staff. And one of the things they did was they looked at me, uh, still working on the desk and blogging at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, when I got home from work, um, they would uh, 
uh, they looked at me and said, hey, this guy has a blog. Maybe he knows how to work on the Internet. And so they moved me over to Boston.com off the uh, off the Globe Sports desk. And uh, basically that's what I've been doing since, uh, writing for Boston.com and uh, trying to help us keep up with uh, everybody else in the market. How, how, when, when all those regional uh, you know, networks and websites came up in, in around the 2009, um, how did you kind of see the, the Boston sports media scene shift at all, if you did? I thought it was a great thing um, because there's more opportunity. You know, it, it, was, uh, it was an opportunity for those of us who were already – well, I, I wasn't that established. Some people knew who I was, but I certainly wasn't somebody who was showing up on – TV or anything like that at the time or, or hosting a midday radio show or anything like that. But uh, people, you know, people are reading my stuff and uh, it was more opportunity for people like me, uh, people uh, like, uh, you know, Felger, who actually went and wrote for WEI at that point in time. Um, it was uh, it would have been more opportunity for, for somebody like you who was uh, firing up and starting in the business. Um, yeah, so it was, it, it was more jobs, and uh, they were well-paying jobs. The jobs at Comcast, Sportsnet, New England uh, were offering at the time were six figures. Um, I don't know what ESPN Boston was paying, but it was enough to lure a lot of people away from us. And, uh, you know, we were paying pretty well at the time. So um, more jobs, more chances for people who are trying to break into the business. And uh, it wasn't a good thing for the Globe by any stretch or, or Boston.com, which was still... Uh, the Globe's primary website at that time because uh, they were poaching our talent because it was established talent in the market. Uh, but uh, for people in the business, specifically as individuals, it was a good thing because uh, there was more for them. And the other thing that came up in 2009 as well in August that month was uh, second sports radio station launched in, in Boston, the Sports Hub, which challenged WEI. And uh, so there were sports writers who were getting gigs on the radio station uh, Tony Maserati, who had, uh, he came to Boston.com at the same time they moved me over to the website from the desk. Uh, he was hired as an afternoon host on the Sports Hub and has had great success there paired with Michael Felger. So uh, just so many chances that came out of that burst of uh, all of these various sites and mediums, uh, media in Boston trying to bolster what it had all at the same time. I think as a as the sports media critic, you uh, for the for the Globe, you have a, a level of detachment and, and are able to view the Boston sports media scene from somewhat of an outsider's perspective while also being in it. Uh, how do you think the Boston uh, media scene in general is different from any other media market in the country? Uh, you know, I I try to I try not to say to get into that. Yeah, we're better at uh, we're more passionate about sports than anybody else. Um, that's the kind of thing that gets uh, Drew McGarry or people like that going about how much they hate Boston. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, Exhibit A is the fact that the two highest-rated radio stations, not sports stations, radio stations in Boston are the two sports stations. That is, uh, you won't find that in another market in the country. Boston isn't the biggest biggest market by uh, by any stretch. I think it's eighth. Uh, on the list, and you look at Chicago, L.A., Houston, San Francisco, whatever, they can't do what what's happening here, which is you have uh, two radio stations that just put up phenomenal numbers, and some of the shows have just had unprecedented success here in, in terms of the ratings that they put up, and it's it's uh, it's gone on for about three years with, with the Felger and Mazza show over at the Sports Hub, where, where they've been number one for like 37 months in a row or something like that, and 
just have crazy numbers, and yet their their competition on the other station does really well and finishes second. And that's a tribute to uh, not necessarily the content that they're providing, because I think they're really aggravating. Both uh, various any show can be aggravating at a certain point in time. Uh, it's a tribute to the fact that Boston sports fans uh, desire for to talk about sports and to hear about sports and to to share their own opinion. Uh, it's insatiable. It really is. And I don't know uh, when that changes. Maybe it happens when uh, the Red Sox are no longer compelling. But, I mean, they finished in last place through the last four years, and you still talk about them as much as ever. Uh, or maybe it happens when the Patriots run here, a decade-and-a-half-long run of sustained excellence. Maybe it changes when that ends. But I don't think so. I mean, WEI had massive numbers in the 90s when uh, they were only showing town and the teams weren't particularly great. Uh, they still had a huge audience, and I think the, the the two stations thing is sustainable. And to me, that is the number one tribute uh, to the, the just the uh, passion, I guess, the insanity of Boston sports fans and their their desire to get as much information as possible. Now, sometimes they hate the media. A lot of times, uh, there are media who troll them to get attention, and it's effective. But the fact is, uh, it's a very real thing that uh, that fans can't get enough around here. I, something that I think is particularly interesting about the Boston uh, sports media scene uh, is the fact that I think a lot of major national personalities have emerged uh, from uh, coming, kind, kind of coming out of Boston and getting notoriety in Boston. You know, Ian Rappaport is somebody uh, who really got uh, you know a big break at the Boston Herald, and you know, Field Yates started a couple of years ago at ESPN Boston. And now he's one of the big faces of the NFL on on ESPN, uh, and and there's so many other names that you could look up, uh, look at. You know, starting with you know Peter Gammons. What is there something about Boston that kind of breeds these these big media personalities? Do you think? Um, well, I think you get reps here for sure. Uh, depending depending on what it is that you want to do, uh, you look at somebody like Field. He's kind of distinctive because he worked in the league. He uh, not a lot of the people who get the insider designation are actual insiders, but. Uh, he was a scout. He knew how things operated with the Kansas City Chiefs, some of the Patriots. And given the news that he breaks on contract stuff, he's still really well sourced. And he's also a guy who uh, really works hard, uh, really treats people well, and uh, is is really good. He's uh, he's a charismatic guy on TV. Spin made a great hire there, uh, and so he is somebody you would look for in any market. A guy like that, uh, no matter whether they were in, uh, you know, if he was still in Kansas City. Uh, and was doing the things he was kind of doing. I think he would have got noticed. It helps the fact that he had the association with the Patriots, who are, um, you know, they don't let a lot of information get out, and he gets a lot, he gets a lot of news there. Uh, and also, when you get a chance to hire somebody who worked for the Patriots and who has uh, a decent semblance of knowledge about what the inner workings are, that that's that's appealing to a company like ESPN as well. But. Uh, yeah, I just think there are so many opportunities here and so many chances to do different things. I mean, you can do radio. Well, we're, we're all headed to the same place. You know, websites have video and TV people have reporters on and, you know, columnists are on the radio and uh, people like me write about the radio people, people for online. It, it, it all, it all uh, sort of combines into one giant cluster. But the, the fact is you get a chance to find out what you're good at if you uh, if you work in the Boston media, you'll get opportunities to, to uh, prove, you know, maybe you're an okay writer, but you go on the radio and you end up being a really good guest on uh, talking about the Bruins or whatever it is. You're going to get more opportunities there. And the more opportunities you get, the better you get at it. And 
so I, I think that's how it works out where there are just so many chances to do things that inevitably you're going to find out what you're good at. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you see with, you know, the, the rise of your blog and, and seeing Sims's uh, rise to ESPN uh, and, and just kind of the, the, the massive amount of blogs covering Boston sports. How did you see just the rise of the internet change, how sports was, was covered being in the middle of that? Yeah. I mean, uh, there certainly are a lot of them and, uh, um, I, Simmons is obviously a big inspiration for that. I mean, uh, I, I happen to like him a lot. Um, I, I've recognized more and more through the years, uh, sort of his particular genius, which is, we found out at Grantland, uh, well, we found out with 30 for 30, if we didn't know it already, that uh, he's a really good ideas guy and, and can come up with these things that sort of fill a vacuum that you didn't know existed. Like, you look at 30 for 30 now and you say, yeah, why wasn't this there all along? But it was uh, Simmons who came up with that idea, wrote it down in a napkin, I think the story goes, and pitched it to uh, ESPN execs, and now they got this incredible, uh, incredible little uh, movie side project going on that's really really well received and seems to have an endless amount of uh, uh, content and, and, and interesting stories. And that was Simmons's brainchild. And then when he went to Grantland, you found out that he's really good with sur- at surrounding himself with people too, with talented people and recognizing uh, that uh, maybe some NBA writer who doesn't have a huge audience has just oodles of talent and gives him a chance uh, there and he, th- he thrives. He's got a real knack for that. Beyond the fact that he was a passionate sports fan, passionate Boston sports fan, who again found a vacuum in the coverage uh, when he was a writer back at Digital Cities and starting out his column back in the late 90s. And he recognized, uh, I thought it was, I used to think it was kind of by accident, but seeing how things have gone for him since, uh, I think he recognized that there was an opportunity there uh, to write about sports and, and pop culture the way that your friends and my friends talk about it, but a way that wasn't represented in the radio, on the radio, it certainly wasn't represented by the columns in the newspapers. And so he filled this void that I guess in the back of our minds we all knew existed, but nobody knew to take advantage of it like he did. And nobody had the talent to take advantage of it like he did. When Once he did that, I mean, I'm one of those people who sort of followed him. I, uh, when I saw what he did, I thought, geez, that's, what, that's how I should write. Uh, that's how I, I I need to write more conversationally, and uh, uh, I need to write more humor and more more references to things that uh, inside jokes and pop culture and things are good that that people are going to be able to relate to. Uh, and of course, there's a whole genre of people that do that now, a whole generation of people that do that now, and it's not different from uh, the generation that I grew up with, which looked at what Gammons and Bob Ryan and Will McDonough did and said, "I want to do that." Now it's kids, uh, college students, whatever, look at Simmons and say. That seems like a pretty good deal. I want to find out if I have that ability. No, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I would totally consider myself as a part of, like, the Gammons generation, the Simmons generation. And that, I, I mean, I grew up reading Simmons and I, Grantland when, when I was in high school, and, and I kind of finally realized that I wanted to go into journalism. It was like the, the dream place where I wanted to work. It was the place that, uh, that I set my goals and aspirations to and was like, if, if I want to intern anywhere in college, I want to, you know, intern at Grantland. And so to see that, right. to, to see that place fall, it was extremely sad for me. Yeah. I was bummed to see Grantland go too, because it was so, uh, it was a, a daily stop. There was always so much great stuff there, but, um, you know, it, 
people who work uh, sort of where I do and uh, are, are of my generation or older tend to look at Simmons and say, yeah, he's not a journalist and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, but he didn't come up the, uh, the usual route that people at newspaper did. And, and that's absurd. It really is. Because if you take a step back and look at what happened, sort of a door that Simmons was one of those people that helped open where he made you realize there's more than one way to do this. There's, uh, if you're not going to climb up through the newspaper ranks, uh, you can take it into your own hands. And if you have talent and you have uh, a serious work ethic, you're going to be discovered or you're going to get opportunities. And uh, fan graphs wouldn't exist if not Simmons who opened up those doors. Uh, baseball prospectus wouldn't exist. So many things, you know, humor sites, the sport, sports pickle, whatever. Uh, all of these things that uh, found their own corner of the Internet, found their own distinctiveness, and found an audience. Uh, Simmons was a real innovator that way. And I, I don't know if he influenced everybody, but he, he certainly had, uh, had a lot of influence on, um, on me and on uh, the way a lot of other people who found their own niche on the web. Uh, yeah, I mean, look at Zach Lowe. You know, he was like a cop reporter in a small paper up here in Massachusetts and he ends up being uh, one of the great NBA voices because he found a way to pursue it went through what Celtics blog Simmons and other people recognized his ability SI recognized his ability and uh, uh, those kind of a sense really wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago do you th- I, I was listening to, to Kirk Minahan's podcast with uh, Dan Shaughnessy and uh, Shaughnessy was talking about how uh, you know following Simmons's to rise to popularity, the the influx of people, uh, lots of college kids my age, who instead of going out there and reporting things, they're they're sitting on their couch and being internet columnists and, and trying to to be a poor man's Bill Simmons. Do you see? Do you do you foresee that kind of that hurting in any way? You know, the the next generation of sports writers, in, in that maybe not a lot of people are, or not as many people are learning how to report and are just sitting from their couch and being critics. Um, I tend to think the ones the way he described it, where it's people sitting on the couch and just opining. If they're not good at it, they're not getting an audience. Uh, there has to be something excellent about them, something distinctive about them for for the audience to catch on. Um, you have to be funny. You have to point something out that's not going to be pointed out elsewhere. Uh, you've got to put more thought into it. Uh, you've got to look at it uh, analytically, sabermetrically, whatever it is that makes you distinctive. If, if you're the way Dan described that Minahan's podcast, and you're sitting on the couch and uh, writing some half-assed thing about uh, the Red Sox game, nobody's going to read it. And you're going to get bored with it because nobody's reading it, and it'll, it'll fade out. The cream rises in, on the Internet as well. Um, I, the frustration I do understand from newspaper people is, and uh, from people of a, a different generation, where the, the newspaper columnist was the authority, and there weren't millions of other uh, voices on the internet challenging their opinion. Uh, the frustration I get is is that they do face the music. That uh, if uh, Dan rips Dustin Pedroia, he's there in the locker room the next day, and Pedroia gets to have his say, and that doesn't happen. Uh, particularly often with the with the internet stuff, I, I've felt um, the more I've gotten access. I mean, when I started writing uh, the blog, I, I wasn't around able to be around the Red Sox or anything like that. Now I, I can pretty much go to what I want to go to. Um, I feel like if you do, if you are critical, you need to be there and uh, you you try to make that effort. Or you know, with me right being the media columnist at the Globe, 
if I write something critical of somebody, I'm going to let them know it's coming and then give them an opportunity to uh, let them let me know what they think of them, whether it's a call the next day or something like that. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I think the f- biggest frustration with with the older school journalists is is that uh, uh, the competition is more competition for eyeballs, and uh, you're, you've you've lost some of your authority authoritative voice because there's so many other voices out there. You've got to be really good and really hustling, or somebody uh, with their website uh, elsewhere is going to hustle you. And so that gets to be the frustration: is that it's not like it used to be. It's not. Uh, it's a much more competitive and free market than it was uh, 20, 30 years ago. Has your perspective on the media changed since you've become a media critic? What has changed about it? Has um, your perspective changed? Just how you view the media? Yeah, um, it has. I'm trying to think of how it has. I, I think I have less tolerance for, for nonsense now. Uh, with sports radio, I've come to grips with the fact that it's not journalism. It's entertainment, and that's a battle I, I tend to fight with people on Twitter quite a bit where uh, they'll say, this and this host, uh, how can he say this? It's not true, and he, he's just trying to make me angry. And, and, you know, my response, especially before I was a media writer, would be, yeah, you know, screw him. He's trying to make you angry, and he's wrong, and uh, he should be held accountable for this. But the bottom line is they're just trying to get you talking about him. They're trying to get their phones ringing. They're trying to get their ratings up. And... Uh, it's their job to do it by any means necessary. Your obligation as a listener and, you know, with that columnist you may or may not like as well is if you don't like it, don't pay attention to it. Don't give them what they're looking for. Uh, because you're, if uh, the most antagonistic group sports radio show in the market is getting huge numbers, that's your fault. That's you and, and, and the other listener's fault because you're paying attention and you're uh, sort of keeping the perpetual motion going there where they're going to keep saying antagonistic things and annoying things and trying to tick you off because it's working. And so uh, their job is not journalists on, on the radio. Uh, their job is to uh, get you talking about them and listening to them. And um, unfortunately, that tends to work a little bit better than uh, being reasoned and, and logical. To be a, a, a logical, uh, entertaining, reasonable sports radio host is a gift. I think Dan Patrick is, it, that's my favorite radio show because I don't feel antagonized when I'm listening to it. I enjoy it. They laugh at each other. Uh, they have smart sports talk, and yet it's engaging and well done enough that they're, they're, you know, they can keep their audience. And that's a hard thing to do when you're just talking about sports. It's much easier to. Uh, just say the most ridiculous thing you can think of, and suddenly everybody's tweeting about what an idiot you are, and the phones are ringing off the hook, and uh, uh, you've done your job. It's not necessarily a, a good job, but you've done the job that you're supposed to do. So if, if you can find a, a radio host who um, who you really like, and he, he does it, uh, or she does it in a way that's that's entertaining and doesn't try to annoy you, that's a, that's a rare thing. Is there a common character trait that you've seen among people who have been successful in media? Um, probably hard work, I guess, right? I mean, you need a little bit of luck, you need a break along the way, but um, really it's just determination. It's uh, even the, uh, the the beat writers, I mean, you, you sort of take those guys for granted. Uh, the work they do every day is insane. You, the, the updates they have to do on the website, the notebook, the Red Sox notebook, the game story that has to be written within 20 minutes and filed and rewritten, and I go through that cycle um, you know, hundreds 
62 times a year through uh, you know March, spring training through October if your team's good, and that's a grind, and it's it's almost taken for granted, but it's a common thing among people in this business is you really have to work hard, and you have to work hard to get there, you have to work hard to stay there, and uh, I don't know that you necessarily have to love sports to to succeed in it. I think there are people who, who maybe lost their love of sports along the way, but um, you're not going to keep your perch if you don't really hustle and work hard, and so. To me, that's the number one thing. You have to be determined. I think it really helps to have uh, some passion for it or some appreciation for sports that comes through and whatever you're doing, whether you're writing, podcasting, uh, on television. But uh, the number one thing is you just got to work and work and work because if you don't, somebody's going to outwork you and take the job that you wanted. Who, who are the people that that you read or or media you know media that you consume on a daily basis? What do you what do you read, listen to, uh, watch? Um, you know, I get so much of it from Twitter. Uh, Grantland was a, a site that um, I did check in on every day. Um, I check Sons of Sam Horn every day. I like the media thread in there. Uh, I I do go to ESPN, especially during baseball season when, um, you know, Keith Law is writing about prospects or something like that. But generally, the, the stuff I read and end up liking ends up in my Twitter feed, and it'll be a uh, like Bruce Arthur, tremendous columnist mm-hmm. in Canada. I probably wouldn't know who he was without Twitter, and yet I think he's probably the best columnist in North America. I love what he reads, what he writes, and uh, so anytime something he tweets out that he's written, I'll read that. Or Jonah Carey, uh, whichever job he has of the fifty jobs that he has, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll always read his work. Guys like that, um, but uh, it tends to be something that just pops up in my Twitter feed rather than having. Uh, set sites that I go to every day. Um, you know, I read the newspaper, the Globe. I'll read the Herald too, just to see what's going on there. And uh, the guys at WEI, and maybe something at Comcast. You know, Tom Curran on the Patriots is great. Mike mm-hmm. Reese on ESPN is great. Uh, but uh, you can't always get to it all in every day. Right. So, um, to, to me, a lot of it, so much of it comes from social media nowadays. So, being a big fan of Grandland, I assume you're excited for the launch of the Ringer. What's that? So, so having been a big fan of Grandland, are you are you excited for the the launch of the Ringer? Yeah, I am. It, it, it's kind of uh, it's it's going to be different. I wish it was the same. I understand why they're changing it because uh, you just can't revive something expected to be what it was at a different address with a different name. And you know, some of the some of the Grandland guys were are elsewhere. You know, Barnwell and Lowe are still at ESPN and under contract for now and uh jonah's doing his various things so uh, i guess you can't get the band back together but and it is smart for them to uh sort of extend it a little little bit or or widen its reach you know they're going to be doing tech and and politics as well and that's probably a good thing there's certainly a market for that uh but you know i'm just glad to have simmons back doing stuff um his podcast is better than it's ever been uh, I'm sure there'll be great stuff there, and he'll discover some people I've never heard of who end up being great contributors. So uh, I am looking forward to having it back. And, uh, yeah, I said his podcast is good as it's ever been. because he can hammer ESPN now, which uh, <laughs> he wasn't allowed to do any work there. So it, it, it adds this la- one more compelling lever, uh, layer to it. But, uh, uh, yeah, I think the, you know pretty much everything Simmons has touched has turned into a, a real success. And, uh uh, I think this probably will be the same thing with HBO's backing. So, what, do, what do you know about or expect uh, to see at the Ringer? Um, well, I'm curious how much he writes. I'm glad he's going to be writing again, but he's got so much management uh, and uh, 
uh, overseeing things to do that uh, uh, I'm curious what, how often he will write. But uh, he, he cut back quite a bit on Grantland, too, with uh, him being essentially an executive at that point. But every, you know, every now and then, Calm would pop up and it'd be as good a read as ever. So hopefully that goes on. Um, he's got all the pop culture people he had at yeah, Grantland. I like a lot of them, Andy Greenwald, Chris Ryan, uh, you know, the movie and TV folks. Uh, so uh, I expect uh, those two things to be similar to, to what he did at Grantland. Uh, the, the curiosity is what's new. You know, what, what do they do with the politics? What do they do with uh, other areas of pop culture and, and with tech? And uh, how does the sports coverage shape up with the, a lot of his core guys not being there right now? You know, again, Zach Barnwell, Jonah, and uh, so on. So um, it's going to be different, but uh, I think it'll have a lot of those attributes that, that we all, or at least you and I, liked about Grantland. And uh, I hope Bill writes more. I understand why he doesn't, but uh, the site's only going to be better if he writes, uh, if he pumps out a little bit of content now and then. Uh-huh. Who are, uh, just changing gears a little bit, but who, who are some of the, the young people in, uh, in sports media today that, that, you're, that you have a particular eye on in terms of, in terms of rising profile? Mm, that's a good one. Um, uh, one writer that I really admire, and I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if he's that young anymore. He was an intern at the Globe about ten years ago, but uh, I, I think Adam Kilgore is emerging as one of the best sports writers in the country. I absolutely love sort Kilgore. Sort of his general columnist, sports columnist for the Washington Post right now. But everything he writes uh, just sort of makes me think, geez, I wish I had written that. And then I'll think afterwards, you know what? He did it better than I could ever do with the, the, the rat. So uh, he's someone who's really high on my list. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, the younger people, you, you, they, tend to, uh, they tend to emerge and get a big, big audience. And then uh, you suddenly realize, geez, this guy's doing really well for somebody so young. You know, you're in that category. You're, you're someone who is very young. And a lot of people already know who you are and respect your work. And uh, there's uh, quite a few people out there like you that uh, are uh, trying to make their own breaks and uh, are doing so. And uh, someone in my position keeps an eye out and looks and says, uh, I'm curious to see what this guy's going to be doing in five years because um, you can see the hustle is there. And, uh, you know, with like somebody like Andrew Sharp at Grantland, uh, uh, I guess he's at SI now. Robert May is at SI. He was a Grantlander. He was a Globe intern like three years ago and is now one of the best NFL writers in the country. Um, you, you keep an eye on the young people that you see that you can tell are, are uh, aggressive and smart and finding their own things to do. And uh, you expect big things. I, I can never predict what they're going to be, but uh, I look forward to seeing what they are. Uh, one of Somebody who I've seen uh, personally grow a lot over the last couple of years has been Jared Grabis, um, and and how he's kind of created his own little niche over at Barstool. And I think he has a very interesting... Uh, own place at Barstool and that he's he doesn't really touch kind of what the main you know the main things that Barstool kind of makes its money off of but he he does very smart baseball content over there and you know uh how have you seen Barstool kind of change the 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 Boston sports media scene because I think it has a very unique place uh and niche in, in its own way yeah you know I don't think they changed it terribly I mean, uh, Portnoy created his own niche, and it ended up being a really, really lucrative niche. And uh, I like it. I mean, uh, I know they do things that really tick people off sometimes, and sometimes it's justified. But uh, what's lost is that he's a really funny writer. He he found a voice that uh, kind of makes you laugh, especially if you don't take him seriously. And 
uh, take what he's saying seriously, take him seriously, because he's done a remarkable job of turning that into a success. But the way he writes, he writes like just sort of uh, uh, real, you know, uh, wise, a self-effacing wise ass, and uh, uh, it works for him. Um, Jared's an interesting case because he's actually been around for for a while. He was like you, where he he started out and kind of made a name for himself very young, and um, you always knew he was doing stuff, and uh, he was. Uh, someone who you respected when he wrote about the Patriots, or I wrote about the Red Sox. Uh, he kind of took that fan angle, but uh, also had a sort of a clear-eyed, um, balanced view of things when they went wrong. And uh, it seemed like Barstool was a really big break for him. Uh, his, that and his friendship with David Price on uh, Twitter <laughs> were, were both big breaks for him. So he's raised his profile recently. I went on his podcast with uh, Pete Blackburn, was also very good and a young guy who's done uh, tremendous stuff. Um, I went on that last, I guess, August when the, uh, everything happened on our soul here, and I was really impressed. I mean, I ex- you know, they had the barstool tie, and I expected it to kind of be goofy and, uh, you know, professional, also uh, maybe a little bit over the top, and it wasn't at all. It was really, really fun to do, and they had a lot of good questions and uh, uh, made me feel like I could be candid with them and, and uh I'm glad to see him doing well because he's someone who's young, but he, he's been around a while and he's worked really hard to get to this point that he's at. And it's it's nice to see uh, it's nice to see him getting the rewards for for all the time and effort he's put in. How do you see how do you see sports media changing over the next five ten years? How do I see it evolving? Yeah. Uh, well, it's hard to say because you know I talked about 2009 and what a pivotal year that was um, locally here in Boston where things just blossomed and those opportunities were there. Uh, now it's being condensed. Uh, ESPN Boston doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, they, you know, they still Mike Reese and uh, a lot of their staff, but when ESPN laid off 300 people, that was sort of preceded by um, them changing like uh, their satellite, satellite sites, the ones that they established in 2009, Boston, LA, Chicago. I think there were six of them. Uh, and they sort of converted them into being just sort of uh, feeders to their blogs. Like uh, Chris Forsberg's Celtics stuff goes to like a general Celtics blog now rather than any ESPN Boston thing. Uh, Mike Reese's Patriots work goes to a Patriots uh, blog uh, and, and a blog network of all the NFL teams. So they've sort of changed their structure there uh, with the reduced staff. And uh, you can kind of see... Um, maybe the same sort of things happening with other sites. I, I, uh, I, I don't think there's job reductions, but I don't see a lot of new jobs popping up either right now. And uh, uh, it seems like things shift and change so quickly, uh, whether it's social media, what the trends are on social media, or um, TV rights, or who's drawing the big ratings, and who isn't, and who's getting paid, and uh, who isn't getting paid, and all these things that happen so fast and, and the, the, the culture shifts are, are so quick that uh, it's kind of tough to gauge where we're going to be in five years because you don't really know where ESPN is going to be in a year. I mean, today, uh, people at Fox Sports, uh, Fox Sports are on their uh, toes because they have to decide whether or not they're going to accept a buyout, and they're reducing staff, and ESPN's reduced staff, and, and nationally, uh, because of the huge... Huge rights deals, especially to ESPN, that they've paid to, to broadcast the, the NFL and other 
professional sports that it's kind of having an effect on the, the infrastructure of the entire company. And uh, mid-level employees have lost their jobs, mid-level, fairly well-paid employees. And that's never a good thing. And when it tends to happen at a bigger company like that, a lot of times it happens at small companies as well. So seems like there's a little bit of a downturn right now. Hopefully uh, it shifts back the other way. But uh, over the next five years, it'll probably go a couple different ways. In terms of content, uh, you know, I think over the last couple of years, there's been a much more heavier emphasis on aggregation and getting clicks and, and of things of that sort. A lot, lots of short form stuff. Uh, where do you see sports media heading in terms of content? Where, what, what do you think people will want to consume over the next, you know, five ten years? Yeah, that's the way it is. I mean, I saw, you know, the Globe uh, one, uh, the the movie about the Globe coverage of the. Catholic Church scandal won the gold, uh, the the Oscar for Best Picture last night, um, and I saw Barry Pacheski from Deadspin tweet that uh, their their uh, what was it the 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 uh, little post on the guy at the NFL Combine whose uh, parts fell out of his uniform <laughs> yeah. while he was running. I I didn't even look at it, but he said that you know would get more traffic than all the Globe's coverage of the Catholic uh, Church scandal, you know. 14 years ago and unfortunately he's probably right um which you know i mean he doesn't know that but i i know the point he's trying to make and uh that sucks it does suck because it just leads everybody into doing the same things i mean uh if you know you know something tom brady and giselle do something today they sell their house well you know everybody is going to have the the same story and uh, it's it's not uh, it's not really interesting, but people are going to click on it when they're killing ten minutes at work. And they, oh, what's Brady just hell up to now? Uh, you know, uh, the whole thing with Brady's Facebook posts—we always get those up as quick as possible. This PR guy uh, does a little post of Brady, his assistant or whatever it is, and uh, you know he's got a new dog and he's holding up his dog. Well, I don't care about that, but. Uh, gets traffic numbers, and they they believe those uh, numbers translate to uh, advertising and money and uh, all those things. And uh, I don't like it. I wish, I wish uh, it was. I wish the best content always won. You know, the best story was always the one that got the most read. But that's just not the way it works. The trick is, um, you just have to do something nobody else is doing, and it has to be something that's compelling that uh, is about a compelling person or a compelling event it helps if that event uh, was overlooked in the time and uh, has to be relatable um, and uh, it, it really helps if uh, uh, it's something that uh, I, I guess the key to it it's something that nobody else has and it's something everybody else wishes they had the one time I've done that I think it was, it was about a year ago now um, I did uh, I, uh, oral history of Larry Bird's 60-point game, which was um, kind of kind of overlooked in all the other great things Larry Bird did, but it, there were a lot of elements that went into it. Uh, he had run a 5K the day before. He'd gone out drinking the night before. The guys when he when he went off in the game, the guys on the other bench were falling off the off the bench laughing at him, uh, and it helped that uh, everybody who was involved with it remembered it fondly and had a story to tell so that that's one thing i wrote that really caught on and uh, those are the things you cherish because uh it's not some little thing that is just a traffic chase it's something that you put a lot of effort and thought and uh, heart into and it ends up paying off but 
feels like those things are fewer and far between these days with everybody trying to do the same thing. Uh-huh. Where do, where do you see yourself uh, in the next you know five ten years, kind of evolving uh, as a as a writer and sports media critic? Um, I hope to still be employed. Uh, that that would be good and and paid okay. Uh, other than that, I, I I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm in my mid forties, so um, you know, people in my generation have a harder harder time to staying on in this. Uh, the globe is uh, seems to be stabilizing, but you know how it is with print. You're you're in the the uh, the constant shift to 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 the internet and to to make money shifting to the internet and. Uh, it can be a painful thing. I mean, we've had several buyouts and a couple layoffs here, and it hurts agonizingly every time. Uh, and you just hope you survive that. Uh, but um, to me, I love what I do. I get to do it uh, in a really cool place with a lot of people I admire and like working with, and you get to do it in Boston, which is no better place. Uh, uh, you know, we talked about it. Everybody cares here. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody cares, and much rather have it be that way than uh, uh, work in a place where there's apathy and uh, you can write uh, the greatest thing about the Atlanta Braves and, and nobody cares about the Atlanta Braves. Here, if you write uh, uh, some little story on who should play center field for the Red Sox, Mookie Betts or Jackie Bradley, and it's, it's two incredible options one way or the other. Uh, everybody's got a, a distinct opinion on who it should be and, and at times that can be aggravating, uh, but you have to take a step back and think, you know, I'm really lucky that people care about this nonsense that I'm doing for a living. Um, well, Ch- Chad, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for uh, taking the time to, to come on to the podcast. You bet, man. Good talking and uh, continue. Good luck. Thanks. I really appreciate that. Have a good one. You are a melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. And thanks again to Chad Finn of the Boston Globe for coming on the show this week. I really appreciate his time and hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. Uh, Next week on the show, we have Jason Stark of ESPN. Uh, We're really uh, making the rounds in terms of people who've who've either written or currently write for baseball on ESPN. Uh, Jason was an amazing guest, and I know you guys are really going to love his his, uh, his insights into journalism and just the baseball media industry as a whole. Uh, so sure, so make sure to, to be on the lookout for that next Wednesday. Uh, if you guys enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, you can also follow the show on Twitter at BartoloPod. Also, rate the show on iTunes if you get a chance. Uh, every rating really does help us get out the word. And in addition, uh, you know, share it with a friend if you if you guys enjoyed it, and if you guys have any uh, media nerd friends that that like listening to this kind of stuff, please make sure to share it with them as well. You can follow me on Twitter at I am June Lee, and if you guys want to tweet us any guest suggestions uh, that you have or anybody you want to see on the show, you can tweet at me, send us an email at doingitforbartolo@gmail.com. I would love to hear your feedback. So until next time, guys, uh, with Jason Stark, uh, this is uh, June Lee. I'll see you guys in the next one. Since you're watching me, I do it all the time. And since you say you love me, it's just a fire. It's just a fire. It's just a fire.